Well, good morning, Branch Church. It's a blessing to be with you this morning as we continue our worship through the hearing of God's word this morning. What happens when you don't drink water? Well, bad things start to happen. Your brain actually starts to shrink a bit. You get headaches. Your brain has to work at least twice as hard to do those normal functions. You become moody, irritable. Can I get a witness? Water actually helps in between your joints to feel better, helps you to sleep at night. So without water going there, your bones start to feel like they're rubbing on one another. And it can progress to being nauseous, fainting, falling over. Your core body temperature rises. The uh, color of your skin starts to change. Three to five days of this, your organs begin to shut down, your brain shutting down, and eventually it could end in death. What happens when you don't drink water? Your body begins to break down. Yes, very thirsty. And you hold a lot of water weight, which is kind of funny. What happens when you don't drink water? You begin to break down and eventually your body will completely stop and you will die. Last week we saw in John 14 that Jesus leaves his disciples with final beliefs he wants them to have before he leaves and goes to the right hand of the Father after his death and resurrection. And at the end of the chapter, he says, rise, let us go. Where are they going? It seems that they're on their way now to Gethsemane. But before they get there, there's more teaching. We still have John 15, 16, and 17. There's still more beliefs, more final teaching he wants them to know before he leaves. And this morning in John 15, a little bit into John 16, we are going to learn this, that Jesus is the source of our transformation, as well as the source for the treatment that we will receive from the world. What happens when you stop drinking water? It's the same thing that happens to you when you stop abiding in Jesus Christ. You will break down. You will begin to suffer in many ways, not only spiritually, but physically as well. And we will see why that is so important that we learn to remain in him. If you have your Bible, turn with me this morning to John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. John 15, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser, just a fancy word for gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. This is the last of the I am sayings in John, and we've seen so many of them. I'm the light of the world, the living water, the resurrection, and we end now with I am the, he doesn't just say vine. He puts an adjective. He says, the true vine, which makes you wonder, in contrast to what? False vines. Very good. (laughs) There is potentially, probably, likely a very specific vine he has in mind here. Who is the vine in the Old Testament? It's Israel. And God has come to Israel, and Israel has failed to bear fruit. She fails to believe, and it ultimately climaxes in seeing Jesus and rejecting him. And Jesus now, by saying, I am the true vine, he is saying, I am the true center, the true locus, the true middle of where God's people are actually at with God himself. Jesus is the place where people live, the place where people are saved, the place where communities actually flourish. Jesus makes himself absolutely central to not only the faith here of Israel, but to the faith of the entire world. 
If Jesus is the vine, what does that make the father? The father is the gardener or the farmer, and he comes. And the father is very intent on finding something very specific. What does the father want? He wants fruit. What is fruit? Righteous results. He wants to see change. He wants to see transformation. And for the, for the branches that are changing, that are transforming, that are bearing fruit, God prunes those, he cleans those, he cares for those that they would continue to do what he wants to do. But for those who are not bearing fruit, which is ultimately gonna show they're not actually connected to the vine, they're going to be removed and we will see what happens to them shortly. There are no stagnant branches on the vine. If you are in Christ, you are receiving the pulsating life of the vine or you are not connected to him and there is no true life flowing within you and showing it in your life. Jesus says, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. He says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus calls for the first application here. He's going to work from this metaphor to very concrete terms of what abiding looks like. But for now, he's sticking with the metaphor and he brings them in and says, I want you to abide in me. He commands them and the me in the Greek is emphatic, abide in me. Best way I can say it, capital M, capital E, abide in me and I in you. And when you do, what's gonna happen? There will be change, there will be transformation. You will not be the same. Because again, the pulsating life of the vine is, is flowing within you. But for those who are not, they will be cast aside. They will be burned, which is a picture of judgment. Fire is a picture of judgment in scripture. Doesn't mean you'll literally be burned with fire, but it's a picture of God's judgment for rejection of him. He says in verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. He brings the disciples in, makes it very clear. If I'm the vine, the father's the gardener, what does that make you? We are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So we must be very careful to guard against this idea that I have to produce good works in order to make God happy, in order for him to clean and prune me. No, actually, by being connected in Christ, the pulsating life is already flowing in you and God is creating and he's enabling those good works to happen. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. You can't believe, you can't worship, you can't serve, you can't love your neighbor. You can do nothing apart from Jesus. And I don't have any qualms about saying that, nothing. That means that everything you can do, who can you give glory to for it? Thank you, Lord. You enabled me to do it. Whatever it was, you made it happen. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Ultimately, again, showing themselves not to be connected to Jesus in faith. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We talked about it last week, and I'll briefly mention it again. When we pray in Jesus' name, it's not a magic formula to get what you want. God, I want a Ferrari in Jesus' name. I want $50,000 in my bank account in Jesus' name. I want my business to triple in Jesus' name this quarter. Lord, I said it, make it happen. It doesn't work that way. 
to pray in Jesus' name is to come to God the Father on the authority of the Son. You can actually come into the Father's presence because of his authority. Otherwise, you're not allowed in. You don't have the right key card, your thumbprint, your eye print, none of it works. No money will get you in, no good works, no family ties, nothing will get you in. You have one authority by which you can come into God's presence, the Son of God, because of what he has done for you, dying for your sins and raising from the grave. It is to pray on behalf of his authority in line with his name and all that his name stands for, his character, his righteousness, his holiness. And like a good Lord, like a good father, he will answer the prayers according to what he deems best. I don't think it's much for me to repeat the illustration I think I used last week. Our kids come and they ask us for things. Do we give them everything they want? No, we would ruin them. They would be unwittingly spoiled. (laughs) A lot of bad things we're not even going to say, but we don't because as parents, we know better. There are certain things they need, certain things maybe, certain things absolutely not. Now, what's the goal of bearing fruit? Verse eight, he says, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What is the goal of bearing fruit? That God would be recognized in the process. And not just God the father, but also that you would be proven to show that you are Jesus's disciples. We bear fruit. God bears fruit within us to show off his amazing glory and the goodness that he's done. Let me ask you a question. Have you seen a change that Jesus has brought into your life? Oh, I know I have. I've done the weirdest things. You know what some of the weirdest things I've done? I've been on a road trip and I've willingly picked up other people's trash in the restaurant because I wanted to honor God and that was the most tangible way that I could think of doing it. And the lady working there was like, I have never seen anybody do that. I didn't say anything, but glory to God, right? That's a picture, an image of God working his goodness inside somebody. Have you seen God change your attitudes? Your attitude maybe for hatred to now love for somebody else. Maybe your attitude from pro-life, which is really the murder of innocent babies to, I'm sorry, pro-choice, to pro-life, where you actually now value the children and you want to, that's God, that's a work of God. Have you seen God change your character where you were so impatient, frustrated, and you would mouth off to people and now you don't do that? You take a deep breath, you love people and you speak kindly to them. I can remember driving in my truck and being done with explicit rap music. I popped the CD out of my deck and I frisbeed it right out of my window. I don't encourage you to litter like that, that was wrong but it was an incredible picture of God working in my heart that I don't wanna listen to that filthy language anymore. And I don't, and I'm thankful, and I don't need it. Can you see how Jesus has transformed and worked in your life? That's what's truly amazing. For me to stand up here and do anything, for you to go out and do anything from what you once were to what you are now, That is an amazing work of God. And when the world sees that, they take notice. The smallest things, right? By the language you use at work, by the way you treat people you know, people see it. They know they can tell the difference because the world operates very differently, very selfishly, out for themselves. But as Christians, we don't do that because Jesus has come and he has transformed us. Following Jesus is not a one-time event. It is an ongoing 
life, everyday step decision in which we walk with him by faith. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? Abide means simply to remain. You are remaining. As a branch remains in the vine, you know, you rip the branch off, what happens to the branch? Within days, that thing withers. We are by faith remaining in Jesus. There is a faithful fellowship in which we are walking and we are being with him. Now it's kind of interesting because Jesus is not physically here, right? He leaves the disciples. He's absent and he tells them, you got to remain in me, but I'm gone. It's like, how do I like picture that metaphorically for myself? Well, the vine does that, but here's another one, the best one that I could think of. If you're in like a long distance relationship, or maybe you have kids across the country or someone else in your family that you love, you remain connected to them. Do you not? calling, texting, email, FaceTime, whatever it is that you do. There's this ongoing. So what does it look like to abide? It looks like intentional time where Jesus and the Father are the focus of your heart. Intentional time followed by intentional living because of the things that he has said and he has given to you. I'm getting way ahead of myself. Verse nine, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, abide in my love. We're now moving from the metaphorical to the very much more concrete. Jesus begins with abide in me and now he progresses to abide in my love. What love? The love the father gave to the son. I don't know if it's this eternal love or is it the incarnate love? Maybe it's a, it's a part of both of these. I'm not exactly sure, but whatever love exactly that the son has received from the father, he has given to you and he has given it to me, and he wants you to stay in that love, that gracious love that saved you from your sin. The gracious love that we're gonna talk about what kind of love that is really, really soon right here. Now, what does it look like to abide in Jesus's love? He tells us in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Do you see the progression? Abiding in Jesus is not a mystical feeling, just you and me only, and nobody else exists. No, it is a abiding in faith in him, which you are remaining in his love, and you show that love by living out his commandments. So abiding is very, very mystical in one sense by faith, but it's very extremely practical and that it impacts all of your life because his words now become your authority and they lead you to do what you do. They lead you to think what you think. All those things because of his words. What commandments is he talking about? I'm supposed to abide in your love by doing your commandments. Well, what exactly are those? He tells you, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love them? Many things, many ways. Teaching, talking, miracles, washing their feet. Verse 13 says it though. It gives the example here. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. What love is Jesus talking about? His sacrificial death on the cross. He gave up his entire life so that they could be saved from the consequences that were theirs. Jesus is the par excellent example of the love that he's talking about. What kind of love? Simply it is this, a sacrificial love. A love that looks at someone else and says, I value you and I'm concerned about you and I desire your good and your benefit 
even above myself and I lift you up to this place where I wanna give to you. That's hard. Can I get a witness? You know why that's hard? Because I've already put myself there and there's not enough room for you to stand here. But what do I gotta do? I gotta step off that, that little podium and say, I'm gonna start doing this for other people. Why? Because that's how Jesus loved me. Why can you pass that kind of sacrificial love on? Because he first gave it to you. How could I possibly sacrifice for my, my spouse or my kids or my neighbor, especially when I wanna pull my hair out? Well, stop, go back to the beginning. Who loved you first? Jesus did, and what did he do? He died for you, he gave his life for you. Is it so much to go over there and to do the dishes now? Is it so much to go over there and to apologize? Is it so much to say you were wrong? If you had to pick a chore in your house that you just don't like, what chore would you choose? The trash? Cleaning up the dog droppings? What do you got? For me, we don't have a dog. So at this point, it would probably be the dishes. And I don't hate the dishes. I just don't like them. I don't like food that's been crusted onto a plate all day. It takes way much more effort to get it off. I don't want to clean the pans. It's not hard. I just don't want to do it. I don't enjoy other people's food and like put it on my hands. But you know what? If it would love my wife, if it would take 10 minutes off her day to put her feet up, I would gladly do it. At least I would choose to gladly do it and pray that the emotions would follow quickly <laughs> because even I too am very selfish. But we're learning how to love. And I'll tell you what, this is one of those, don't wait for a feeling. I'm gonna go home and wait for this magical feeling to now I'm ready to love. No, it's a mind shift that you make right now and you start thinking about it and it will free you from yourself. And I think yourself is probably the biggest problem in your life, if I can say that. Okay, I'll say it for me. I'll say it for me. I am the biggest problem in my life, myself. And once I get over myself and I see Christ and I pass on the thing, it is so wonderful and it's an amazing life. Who wouldn't want to live that kind of life? Look at the benefits here of abiding in verse 14. He says, you are... You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. The benefits of abiding are amazing. We'll go back to verse 11. Verse 11 says that you may have joy. What is joy? Simply joy is delighting in something. When you abide in Jesus, it's not a burden, it's a delight. When you abide in his love, and you live out his commands, it's not a burden, it is a delight. Remember what Jesus said? Come and take the yoke, take my yoke upon you. It's not burdensome. The law of love that he has given us, it's not burdensome. It's a delight that we get to walk in and extend to other people. Now, we don't just get joy in abiding, we also are called friends. This is amazing. You don't tell everybody everything about your life, do you? You usually tell your friends. And so God has got to the point where he has told Jesus and then Jesus had told us everything the father wants to tell us. And we're not just his servants, which I think we still are in a way because Paul calls himself a servant, a bond servant of Christ. But we're more than that. We're also friends. And even more than that, First John tells us we're also children. So we wear these mini hats where we get the benefit of family, of being adopted. We have the benefit of getting to delight in our Lord. You see, it's not this militaristic, yes, sir, yes, sir, nothing else, and I'm sorry to bother you, and maybe I'll come back next week. No, you come as a child comes to his father, and you delight. 
and you remain in that love and you gladly receive those commandments and you beg for God's grace and help to live them out because we still need his help, do we not? <laughs> Verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. In other words, I want your fruit to remain. I want it to last. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. In verse eight, we saw the benefits or the, the goal of abiding and the goal was to glorify the Father and the Son. Here we see another benefit, I'm sorry, another goal. And the goal is to bear fruit that would last. What does that mean? I agree with D.A. Carson here. I think it's new believers, it's new converts. It's disciples who make disciples. It's an ongoing cycle where the disciples' fruit here would pour into the next disciples and then into the next disciples. If you've been on our church website or other church website in San Diego, you will notice something in common. They all, at least I'm pretty sure, all have mission statements. And we've gotten very, very unique with it. We've gotten very precise in some ways in which we say things you've heard at Connect, Grow, Serve, When Disciples Send, Save, Equip, Send, Expose, Empower, Unleash, right? It's amazing how many ways you can say the same thing kind of, right? In a sense, we're all saying the same thing. At least we should be. But at the end of the day, what is the mission? And this is what the mission is. The mission is to glorify God by bearing fruit and making disciples in the gospel. That's it. And, it, and even if we don't see it on a church website or even if we don't say it exactly that way, that needs to be the heart as a church of why we're here. We exist to glorify God, to make him known by bearing fruit, showing off the incredible transformation he has done in us and making disciples in the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has already accomplished for you. That's our task. And if we ever lose sight of that, those doors will close and we will all be gone. So we cannot lose sight of that. Now, I wanna say something about discipleship. Maybe when I say discipleship, you might think of someone like me standing here teaching the church. Or you might think of a Bible study leader and that's it. They disciple and the rest of us are disciplees. I think discipleship is much bigger than that. You don't have to be a pastor or an elder or a Bible study leader or an author. You can be a mom. You can be a brother, a sister, an aunt, an uncle. You can be a grandma, a grandpa, and you can pour into the lives of those around you. Even if you don't say something, maybe you're living it and showing the example. I think those can all play into the discipleship process. There is no way that I'm the only person discipling you in your life by standing here. At least I hope not. You're probably listening to other people, great, reading books, encouraging one another. Yes, we need all of that in the discipleship making process. Why? That's what God wants. He wants disciples who make disciples. He wants fruit that would last. He wants people to be saved, rescued, and to be in his family. Jesus ends this first section here. He says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. In case you forgot, don't forget, make sure you love one another. So what do we learn here in this first half of 15? Jesus is the source of our life and our continued transformation. He's not here physically, but he is still with us by the power of the spirit. And we remain plugged into him by faith, in his love, living out his commandments. All of those are important. Now, what does it look like? What does it look like to practically abide? It's a whole nother class, right? What does it look like to have your time intentionally focusing on God the Father and the Son, and then, and then followed by intentional living for him. 
Well, I'll start with just this. It looks like this. It looks like Jimmy. Jimmy gets up before work and he spends time in the word. I need to know what you've said. I need to be washed. I need to be filled with you. Lord, here I am. I think it looks like Rebecca, who's got four kids and she can't really get up early and do Devo. So she's in her car and she's praying and connecting with the Lord. I think it looks like Bob who comes home from work and he turns the TV off. He puts his phone down and says, everybody gather around. We're gonna have some family worship. We're gonna read a psalm. We're gonna listen to a song on YouTube. We're gonna sing it together and we're gonna pray for one another. We're gonna pray for this family in the church because we know this person is hurting. It looks like Felicia. Have I used Felicia yet? It looks like Felicia. I can't remember the name. Felicia putting scripture on her fridge. So every time she walks by it, she's reminded of the grace of God in her life and ask, Lord, help me to be that. Help me to live that. Now, is transformation possible? Is trans- I, I think maybe you might feel, I don't know, it's pretty hard. I feel like maybe I'm stuck in some things and it's just not progressing as much as I want to. Is transformation possible? The answer is absolutely yes. It starts with knowing and believing yes. Romans 12, 2. Paul tells us, be transformed by the renewing of your... Here's the fun part. The word transform, that verb... The emphasis of the change is put on God, not you. Be transformed as you put your mind to the scripture, as you read and present yourself to God, as you rest in him by faith, there's a transformation that happens from God. How do I know it? Because the voice in the verb is passive. You be transformed, but then it's passive. And you're like, well, how am I supposed to passively not do Because God is the one doing the work. God is the one calling God is the one moving and bringing about the fruits that he desires. We are simply a branch on the vine that we were first connected to by faith. Second Corinthians 3.18, another verse. Actually, let's read it together. Second Corinthians 3.18. This is the other verse that speaks of how transformation is possible. And in fact, it's not just possible, you should expect it. You should expect it. It says this, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are looking into the glory of the Lord, of Jesus Christ, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Is God changing us? Yes. And what is the goal? Not just fruit, but he's changing us into the image of who? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect human, the way we were supposed to be, and God is moving and working that you would be more like Christ. Has anyone reached that level just yet? None of us have. So we are constantly growing and changing, and God is constantly not just saving us by his grace, but sanctifying us by that same grace. One last question before we move on to the next section. Why do we not see transformation in our lives? several reasons maybe you could cite. At the end of the day, you go, am I really hooked up to the Lord? Do I really believe? Have you ever had this where you go to put your phone in to charge it and then you come back and it's not charging? And you look back, you're like, holy cow, I missed that slit. And somehow I put it into the rubber thing between the foam and, and the phone. It's, it's not plugged. Just plug in, would you? And you realize I'm not actually plugged in by faith. Or think about my computer. Sometimes the plug doesn't get all the way in. It's like, I gotta give it a little tap. Some of you may need a little tap. 
You need to believe. You need to make that decision. I believe. I trust in Jesus Christ. And when you do, God will bear his fruit in you as you walk by faith in him. Jesus is the source of our transformation. He continues now to the next part, and we're going to see that Jesus is also the source of how we are treated by the world. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. We're not special. (laughs) Jesus got it first. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they did not know him who sent me. You will be treated like the one you associate with. If you associate with the world as it pursues pleasure, if you associate with the world as it is in rebellion against God, the world will receive you and it will love you. Welcome to the party. We like you. If, however, you step away from that and you associate and put your allegiance to Jesus Christ and and he is your king and you walk with him and you look at that and say, that's evil. I don't want anything to do with that. The world will not receive you as its own. And in fact, it will make fun of you. It will not like you. It will do mean things to you. We see this going on. All Our culture is, it's so clear now. Cancel culture is everywhere. We know this. Everything from Dr. Seuss to movie stars being let go of projects to even now the Speaker of the House. Mike Johnson? Getting my Johnsons mixed up. Mike Johnson. So I don't know much about him, but I know that his Christian faith has become center stage. And I've heard some of the responses, and this is what I want to highlight. Bill Maher and his show made this comparison. He said, the guy who did the mass shooting in Massachusetts was apparently hearing voices in his head. How much further away is this guy who's a Christian who hears voices in his head? Do you see that? He, he says, there's, there's a degree in difference, but the line is thin. Do you see that? I heard another one, Jen Psaki on, I think it was her show. I think it's MSNBC. And she was giving him a hard time as well. I can't remember exactly what she said, but this guy doesn't just have the word of God inform his worldview. It is his worldview. And I'm like, yes, it is. Amen. Let's go. Like, (laughs) absolutely. He's been called, I think, a Christian fascist, all these kind of things because he believes in the word of God. What are we to do knowing the world is going to treat us this way? Jesus is going to give us two things. He gave us the first one right here. He says, remember, remember what I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. What does that mean? If the master's treated like this, you will be treated like this. But that also goes for the good. How was Jesus treated? It was good, bad, ugly, indifferent. He got all of it. As Christians, we need to expect to receive all of it. Why should we be expecting? So you're not surprised and ultimately you don't fall away because you think it's all supposed to be perfect. Oh no, someone hates me because I'm a Christian. This must be the wrong faith. Well, I might as well leave now. No, Jesus prevents us from doing that because we know how we're going to be treated. When I first came on staff here four and a half years ago, uh, one of my focuses was evangelism. So I decided to go to the neighborhoods at CPMA where we were meeting, knock on doors and try to invite people to the church, let them know we're there, share the gospel, whatever I could get. I got the whole range. Some people would open the door, but not the screen. You know, one of those screens you couldn't see all the way through and you're like, you know, and kind of thanks, but no thanks. I had another guy who actually let me come in his house. It still happens. I know I couldn't believe it. 
I'm like, this is great. I'm in his house. We're going to talk about the Lord. Another guy I ended up playing chess with. I don't know. He wanted to play chess. And so I'm just <laughs> trying to do whatever I can to make the connection. Another woman, she did have a no soliciting sign. I made the choice that the gospel was more important. I woke her up and she was very upset. She was so upset that she actually got in her car and followed me and started yelling at me on the street. And I actually started to feel a little scared because I don't know what she's going to do. But she's threatening, I'm going to tell the school that you're at. I'm going to call the cops. And I'm thinking the school does not care about us. You know, They're like, please, we got plenty of stuff to deal with. But it was one of those, I just like, you know what, I'm going to leave. She's in the middle of the street yelling. And you might think, yeah, but that's you as a pastor going door to door. Well, I've experienced it in the work world too. When I used to work in the after school program, I got the whole range. I used to bring my Bible every day. That's one thing I wanted. I wanted the kids to associate my presence with the word of God. And so I would bring it and I would set it down so everybody could see it. Sometimes we might look at it, open it. Sometimes the kids wanted to bring it out to the playground and talk about Job, actually Job. But I, I had one teacher call from her classroom. I didn't know where exactly, but she went and told him. I mean, Sean's out there you know, sharing his Bible with people. I get called in, I get in trouble. And I don't know if it was exactly that one, but I end up, well, I'll tell this first. I was on the bus on a field trip, second grader, start talking about something in Revelation. And we're talking about Revelation. He's like eight years old. He's having a great time. You know, it's exciting and dragons and right, young boys. He goes home and tells mom and dad, I get a phone, we get a phone call that Sean's doing this. And so now I'm in trouble. And somehow it all works. And, and I'm sitting before my boss and she wrote this whole thing up. And a lot of it just wasn't true. I couldn't even believe it. It was so not true. Sean favors the Christian kids and doesn't like the other kids. And I'm like, if anything, I'm actually doing the opposite. I'm not being a very good church lover because I'm trying to receive the loss. And so I'm right in front of her. I'm Xing it out and change. And she's like, just don't even do that. Like, don't worry about it. She was a Christian as well. And she looked at me and she says, I need you to stop. Can you stop? And I looked up and I said, no, I can't. She didn't fire me, but they moved me to kindergartners. <laughs> I'm like, let's go. Let's go. I'll talk to the five-year-olds. So in our witnesses as Christians, wherever you are, expect the range. Some people will like you, some won't, and some people won't care. But what do we do? We share the gospel because we know they need it, even if their hearts are full of hate because the gospel is more important. Jesus continues here in verse 22. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin because Jesus has brought the perfect revelation of the Father, the clearest light. There's no excuse. He says, whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Jesus has come and given the perfect revelation. Not only did they not receive it and believe in it, they actually hated him. And when you hate Jesus, the father takes it very personal. It's as if hating the father himself. We feel that way, right? If I came and pushed your child down, how would you personally feel about that? Now, I would never do that, right? Someone calls your baby ugly. You feel very personal. Don't call my baby ugly. Had an incident at the park where a boy started to assert his dominance and tell my daughter about it, how old he was and bigger than her. And I just, oh, what are you doing? Excuse me, son. No, you need to be kind. God takes it very personal how we treat and believe in the son. But that's good news because when you believe in him, guess what? You know exactly how God the Father feels about you as well. Here's the thing. This hate is unjustified. It's without a cause. 
In the same way that David was hated without a cause, either Psalm 69 or Psalm 35, I don't know which one exactly because they both have this kind of citation here. In the same way, typologically, Jesus and the bloodline of the Messiah, or in the bloodline of David, who is the Messiah, he is hated without cause. There's no excuse for hating Jesus. It is unjustified. Think about it. How could you hate the one who shows you who God is? You wouldn't have known otherwise. How can you hate the one who came to the earth and said, hey, I see your list of sins is far greater than you can comprehend. I'll take that for you. I'll take your consequences. How can you hate the one who forgives your sins? How can you hate the one who has come to restore you, your mind, body, soul? How could you hate the one who also hates evil and will deal with the things that you hate? How could we? You can't. It is unjustified to hate the Lord Jesus Christ. People just don't know him. And if they do, they don't believe, which means they don't know him. Verse 26, he says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus is the source of the way we'll be treated. Two things. One, we want to remember that a servant is not greater than his master. We will receive what he receives. Secondly, we want to keep testifying. That's this part right here. Keep testifying. Keep sharing. Even if people hate it, even if they don't want to hear it, because the news is more important than the way that they feel. Remember what God did with Saul. He took a man who was breathing out murderous threats and he turned his heart into someone who was the biggest possible advocate and missionary ever for the church. Take someone who hated the church to someone who absolutely loved and was given his life for the church. That is the transforming grace of our Lord and Savior. We see the work of the Spirit. I think I'm going to say that for next week as Jesus brings it up again. But Jesus ends it with this. He tells us why. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. That's the point. Know this so you're not surprised and you don't freak out and run away. No, you remain, you abide. He says, they will put you out of the synagogues. They're going to kick us out of the synagogues. Yeah, indeed. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. Uh, Excuse me, Jesus, did you just say kill? They're going to kill us? How serious is this? This is very serious. It's life or death serious in following our Lord. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus is the source of our life. And as such, we are called to remain by faith, relax and remain in his love and to live out his commandments. And we remember that we will be treated as the world does has treated him. We remember this and we keep preaching the gospel because it's the most powerful thing that can change a heart. And I think it's the best thing you could tell yourself when you get up in the morning. Look in the mirror and do some gospel affirmations. Jesus died for you and saved you from your sin. That might be a good thing you might need to hear. I don't know. You take that with a grain of salt. God is so gracious to us. Amen. I'm going to invite a brother up. Sean and Bai is going to come right now, and he's going to share how God has taken him from the kingdom of darkness unto the kingdom of light. Thank you, Sean. 
giving me this chance to share my testimony. For you who don't know me, my name is Sean. <laughs> um, some of the men here may remember uh, a breakfast not too long ago where I got a chance to speak about Thomas the Apostle. And part of that was me sharing how his work as a missionary in India actually played a key role in converting some of my ancestors to believing and worshiping the one true God. I'm thankful to say that for many generations, my family has been Christian. But unfortunately, just growing up in a Christian household wasn't enough to save me. I understood the value of the church, or at least I thought so. I engaged as much as I could. I volunteered in the Sunday school. I played a part in the worship team, but I always knew I was missing something. My parents, they were distraught. They would ask me, why don't you just get baptized already? I think they were especially embarrassed when my little sister chose to get baptized and I just watched on, never having declared faith publicly. But in my heart, I knew I wasn't ready. By the time I started high school, I'd already built the notion that a believer must first be able to respond to all questions about their faith, the world, why it is as it is. That goal kind of worked against me in the end. I moved away from my parents to go to school here at UC San Diego. I hungrily consumed every idea put forth by my peers, by my professors, eagerly trying to knit together this bulletproof construction that would be my rational worldview. Like a seed in shallow soil, I fell away pretty quickly. As was popular, I uh, settled into this very vocal, naturalistic atheism. I, with young pride, declared, I think I finally figured it all out. It's just science. You just need science to tell you everything about the truth of reality. And anybody who believes in anything else, anything more, is just naive, like I was when I grew up under my parents' roof. My self-assurance only grew bolder as I felt like I was being rewarded for my understanding of the world. I was receiving praise for how well I performed in school. I was respected by my friends. I, most importantly, as I invested into my own fitness, was finally getting the attention of some girls. <laughs> it didn't last very long though, not much longer than after college. Within the year of graduating, I was humbled. The girl that I thought I was gonna marry dumped me. I felt like I was stuck in a job that wasn't going anywhere. I, well, my relationship with my family was at an all-time low. How could it be? I was so certain in my worldview that I just couldn't understand a way that it didn't go according to my plan. <laughs> I, uh, It was a dark period. It felt like the rug under my feet had been swept away. I couldn't tell what was up from down. And in that time, I thought, let's redouble the efforts, learn more. 
I felt that the key out of this had to be more knowledge. I read books, I listened to lectures, I debated anybody who was willing, but God took that time to soften my heart. The more I engaged, the less certain I felt that I would ever know the truth. I guess I was lucky that even my solid belief or misguided belief that God is dead, even that fell away. Then into my life came a woman. <laughs> Maybe some of you know her. Her name rhymes with battery. Uh. <laughs> Maybe that'll help you pronounce it better. <laughs> I would like to say the chemistry between us was immediate, but I think Katerina would say otherwise. She could vouch that a lot of the legwork up front was done by her to get my attention. Perhaps a story for a different day. <laughs> But what I do want to tell you is even though I didn't know it at the time, God had sent me the love of my life to lead me back to his flock. Kateria and her family had a very immense impact on me. They showed me how imperfect people can still express the perfect love of Christ. I would say I was more than just a little intrigued. It was more like the scales fell from my eyes and all of a sudden the world looked different to me, new color. All my studies, they started to show the obvious evidence of a creator. My time in nature showed meticulous design bestowed by a designer. The love I received by Kateria and her family felt like it only reflected the joy that comes from a redeemer. It can be tough for me sometimes to, uh, <laughs> to uh, share my testimony because I end up talking a long time and it's because I really can't point to a single moment where I feel like Jesus came in and said, this is it, it make it all clear for you, Sean. He just didn't work that way for me. It was a process, it still is. I can tell you what he's doing is he's pursuing me constantly, finding me where I'm at and whittling down my hard heart. God is good. He has shown me how there is more and more of his fruit appearing in my life. He has granted me a growing family that allows me to understand even better his love for me. By trusting in his son's work, I finally gained the peace that I wanted so badly. And I can rest easy knowing that the secret things, they belong to the Lord. But everything that we need to know, he has revealed to us already so that we may receive eternal salvation. Praise God, because I'm no longer bound by sin. Thank you for listening to my testimony. Good job, brother. Thank you. Amen. I love what he said about he can see God's fruit in him. And that's what it is. Let's pray. 
Gracious Father, thank you for giving us of your son. I pray for those in here who do not believe in you, Lord, you give them the grace to believe. Let the scales fall from their eyes. And in the process, Lord, thank you that you're continuing to work. For those who do believe, Lord, grant us the grace to continue to remain in your love and in your commandments. Give us the grace, Lord, to continue to believe and share your gospel. Have your way with us, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name.